Yeah, so just, uh, just a little bit more information. So the, the college is Clearwater College. Uh, it's seven miles west of Caroline. Caroline is a very small town. The only thing that it's known for is that's where Kurt Browning is from. Uh, if you're old enough to remember Kurt Browning. Um, and if you follow figure skating. Uh, yeah, close to Rocky Mountain House, about 25 minutes south of there, about an hour southwest of Red Deer, about an hour and a half northwest of the north end of Calgary. Uh, beautiful location, 80-acre campus, borders Crown Land, bush everywhere, Clearwater River flows beside it. We currently live by the Rat River, so from the Rat River to the Clearwater River, <laughs> best drinking water you'll find anywhere. Um, anyway, so we're, we're very excited about the going. We are not excited about the leaving. Uh, so uh, what Paul was saying, we've, we've really come to just love being planted where we are. And, uh, and so it's, it is difficult that way to leave. But it's not supposed to be easy to leave the church. So um, it's a sign that there have been great relationships established. And uh, like Paul was saying, we're excited about how we can uh, use this opportunity to serve salt and light well in this area. The college actually has some long-standing historical connections with some salt and light uh, churches out west. Um, and uh, Ron McLean actually spoke at a youth retreat there probably 17 years ago. Um, anyway, so that's, uh, that's kind of what's happening there. And uh, so if you all of a sudden are looking for a Bible college that focuses on the Lord, uses the Word as its guide, is full of the Spirit, and makes disciples, that's what we're all about. So, okay. Quarter to 12? And it's actually kind of quarter to one, or whatever time, I don't know, has that clock been changed yet? Uh, so <clears throat> we'll, see, we'll see how, uh, how fast we can get through this but uh, still make sure we focus on what God wants us to focus on. Let's just pray. Lord, we're grateful for uh, your work, how you are just always at work. Um, yeah, it's amazing, God. You don't, you don't sleep. Uh, your, your eye catches everything, and uh, nothing catches you by surprise. And Lord, we're just thankful for how you, you, you just are that involved in our lives. And so, God, I pray that as we, we go through this uh, message that I believe you've laid on my heart, God, that you will accomplish the purposes that you uh, had set out for this, that you would speak to us the way that you and only you can do, and, Lord, that you would continue to conform us to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I, was, I won't spend too much time on this, but I was going to start out with uh, a little bit of an introduction to ethics and ideologies because one, the main thing that I want to focus on is addressing a particular idea that comes out of the worldview that surrounds us, which is actually false. I mean, there's many of them, um, but there's one in particular. So I'm, I'm just going to summarize here. So, in, so ethics is the idea of determining what is good, what is honorable, what is right. And there are three main schools of thought of how to go about doing that. One is uh, the deontological view, which basically says that there are rules established and it is our duty to follow those rules all the time. So tell the truth, that means in all situations, you always need to tell the truth. And uh, the way to establish what these rules are, uh, according to, those, uh, to most secular philosophers, is that you just use reason to determine what it is. Uh, a second... School of thought is 
Uh, it's called Virtue Ethics, and that focuses not so much on the action itself, but actually on the individual. And that says, as you need to practice these virtues, like honesty and kindness and so on, so that you can become a virtuous person, so that when you're faced with an ethical situation, you will be able to make the correct decision, the right decision, what's right, what's honorable, what's good. And it's not always the same decision, depends on the context and so on. Um, so there isn't always just hard and fast rules. Uh, the third way is utilitarianism, which perhaps some of you have heard of. And that idea is that when faced with an ethical dilemma, your guide is what brings the most happiness to the greatest number of people that are affected by the decision. And it might come at even personal cost, but the, the greatest happiness to the greatest number of people that are affected by the decision. So these are the three main ways that, that uh, there's, there's others, but these are the three main ways that have developed, uh, particularly in Western civilizations, in order for us to determine what is good, right, and honorable. And so for us as believers, um, when, we, when we try to determine what is good, right, and honorable, we need to ensure that the foundation of all of it is this. It's God's word quickened by the Spirit in us that helps us to determine what is good, what is right, what is honorable. And actually, I would suggest that all three of these primary ways that people see, you could find elements of them in Scripture. There are some absolutes, worship the Lord and serve him only. There's no exceptions to that. That's, that's our, our duty. Um, there is a great emphasis on personal integrity and character development and being a virtuous person and, and that there are decisions in different situations that aren't always exactly the same. And of course, there is consideration of the consequences of our decision and how that impacts other people. Um, <clears throat> so the, the point I want to make there is this is our guide for determining what is right, good, and honorable. Okay? Now, set that aside briefly ideologies or worldviews, we live in a society that has a social liberalism as its ideology, as its worldview. Liberalism kind of came out of the Enlightenment, uh, which was around the time of the Reformation, 1500s and, 16, and so on, and it's developed. And in Western civilization, we live in a social liberal ideology. Even if the conservatives would have been elected, we still live in a social liberal ideology. Okay, So liberal values... I'm, I'm not talking about political parties so much, although it's, it's all kind of mixed in. Um, just I'm talking about a worldview. So liberalism, some values are individual autonomy. So I'm in charge of myself. You can't tell me what to do, right? As long as I'm not hurting anybody else, I have the freedom to do whatever I want to. You can't tell me what to do with my body, all right? <clears throat> Equality is a value of liberalism. Freedom, rights, tolerance, consent. These are liberal values. And I'm not suggesting that they're all wrong or all wrong in part even, um, but these are the values of liberalism. Uh, socialism obviously has heavily influenced um, our society as well, and so this is where you get things like government intervention and rules and laws uh, to make sure things are functioning certain ways. Minimum wages, free health care, free public education, social services, those all come out of socialist ideologies. That's not all bad either. Sometimes when we hear the word socialist, we're like, ah, and I get it. You go too far, it, it's a little scary. Uh, this is the reality of the world we live in, okay? Now, here's a quote from one of the courses that I took a while back on ideologies. 
It says, the most successful ideology is the one that is so deeply ingrained in society that it is not even recognized as an ideology. For instance, liberalism, once a lightning rod for change, so when it was coming in to become, when it was becoming more popular, again in the 15, 16, 1700s, um, it, was, it was not, it was opposed at the time. Once a lightning rod for change is so well entrenched in much of Western civilization that many do not even see it as an ideology. To them, it's just so obviously true. So, for example, in our society, it's so obviously true that every single person who's an adult should have the right to vote. It's just so obvious. Like, we just, we just see that as, well, obviously. But wait a minute, that actually comes from a particular ideology. It wasn't always that way. And there are competing ideologies for whether or not that's actually a good thing. It's just so obvious in our society that there should be the separation of church and state. But when we say, well, what's that based on? Well, it's just so obvious. It's just so true. Well, yeah, but what is that based on? See, these, these ideas that we have, and I'm not suggesting that all of, all of these ideas are bad or wrong. I mean, some are questionable, but but we just need to know that actually the values that we hold, this idea of equality, again, I'm not suggesting that's wrong, but it's based on an ideology. It's based on something beyond ourselves, a belief system that we have. Um, so the, the question for us as believers is what type of worldview do we hold that actually informs and interprets everything around us? Everything that we observe, everything that we do. Now, what happens sometimes is when, when we grow up in a social, liberal, ideological world and we read something in here that actually goes against that, we think, well, what do we do with that? Well, this was just a different culture. So, obviously, we've become much wiser and smarter than whoever wrote this book because it's just so obviously true that what we believe must be right. We need to be aware of our way of thinking and where our worldview is. And, and it is our responsibility as believers to hold a biblical worldview. So when things in here, again, quickened by the Spirit, made alive by the Spirit, worked in us in terms of how we actually walk this out, when those things, when we come across these things and they contradict what happens in our society, our responsibility is to hold to this. Today, the church faces many different uh, issues. There are many social issues that are confronting the church. A few of them, abortion, gay marriage, religious freedom, transgenderism and gender identity, distrust of authority, lack of commitment, religious pluralism, the shift of the church being seen as a moral beacon to society to now being seen more as the enemy. These are things that we face. And so within this context of social liberalism, this worldview, the society that we live in, with these social issues confronting the church, how do we determine what to do? How do we determine what is right and what is wrong? There is... I'll get my pages in the right order here. With some of these things, um, someone who holds to a liberal ideology, I mentioned this early, would say, well, if it doesn't hurt anybody else, I should be free to do it. Now, many in the church have bought into this. 
And I've said, well, that makes sense. If it doesn't hurt anybody else, then why not? Well, yeah, then, then I guess you should be able to do it because it's just so obviously true because we hold to this ideology. The problem is this, this, this claim of I can do what I want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, it comes from this ideology which was developed by fallen humanity. And I'm going to show in a minute how that actually contradicts what the word says. But if we don't recognize that we're holding to a different way of thinking than what the scriptures show us, then what we're saying is, you know, this idea that you can do whatever you want or, or these values of as long as I'm not hurting anybody, I can do whatever I want, that that's a better idea than what the Lord has already revealed in his word. And we're all of a sudden saying that God isn't as smart as, you know, whoever came up with liberalism. I realize I'm kind of rushing through this, um, but I, I just want to really set the stage with we need to be careful and be aware of our way of thinking and ensure that we are grounded in the word. All right? If, something, if someone comes with a good idea and it's like, oh boy, that really resonates with my heart, we need to be careful. We need to be aware because what does Jeremiah 79 say about the heart? It is deceptively wicked above all. Who can know it? If we have departed from the values of the Lord, if we've departed from the truth of God's word, it doesn't matter if our heart feels fuzzy when we hear that because our hearts can deceive us if we're not lined up with the word. If someone comes to us and, and they say, well, this is, this is how we, we should be able to behave because of this, and we think, well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We need to be careful because if our minds are not in tune with the word of God, Romans 1 tells us in their thinking they became futile. If, they, if we turn away from the Lord. That's not to say God is illogical. Isaiah chapter 1, he appeals to the Israelites who have turned away from them. He says, come, let's reason together. Let's, let's talk about this. God is not an illogical God. Okay, he does reason, absolutely. But we need to be lined up with his word. And then we can know if ideas that come across are actually good and right. So, let me... Let me just address this idea. If it doesn't hurt anybody else, you should be free to do it. The scriptures show us that if we agree with that, we're actually agreeing with a lie. Let me just also insert in here that we are called to speak the truth in love. So in no way am I suggesting that um, we should be uh, condemning, that we should be shouting down people who... Uh, hold to different ideas. We speak the truth in love, okay? Okay, I'm, I'm going to, so, so again, what I'm focusing on is the idea that if it doesn't hurt anybody else, you should be free to do it. I'm, uh, I want to show, based on the word, that that is not true. We're going to look at three stories that prove it. The first one is Achan in Joshua chapter 7. So just setting the stage here, the Israelites had just wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They crossed the Jordan River and God had given them specific instructions on how to attack Jericho. He was going to do a miraculous work and the city was to be destroyed. They would walk around the city uh, for a number of days. On the last day, seven times, they would shout and the walls came tumbling down and God had given them specific instructions and, and he said, this city is devoted to destruction for me. You can't have anything from this city. 
everything that's living is to be dis uh, killed and all the plunder, you can't have it. And uh, it's actually, it's kind of like a tithe, actually. It's the first of what God was going to give them that's given to him, trusting that God would provide the rest. And so they could take plunder from the rest of the cities that they would destroy, but the first of what he was providing was devoted to him. So, uh, so they go in and they conquer Jericho, and here we are in Joshua chapter 7. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, verse 1 says, But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. So these were the things, uh, the plunder of Jericho. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the, Lord, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Notice that it was Achan who did it, but it says the Israelites acted unfaithfully, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. It doesn't say Achan acted unfaithfully, and the Lord's anger burned against Achan. It's actually Israelite. The, the whole nation is included in this. Uh, so then after Jericho, Joshua is unaware of this. They send some scouts out to Ai, the next city they're going to conquer, and they say, it's not a very big city. We don't need to send too many people. So um, verse 4 says, So about 3,000 men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. So the Israelites went and they were defeated and about 36 men died. So Joshua falls on his face before God and the elders come too and they're like, God, what's going on? Verse 10 says, the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. It doesn't say Achan sins. It's Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Okay, so God reveals that somebody took something they were not supposed to take from Jericho. So they go through this uh, investigative process and determine that it's Achan, who actually was the one who, who took uh, what he wasn't supposed to take. Down to verse 19, it says, Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. This verse actually is reminiscent of, of uh, Eve in the garden. I saw, I coveted, I took. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And there it was, hidden in, the, in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after, that, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. So, Achan, one of the guys who went in to conquer Jericho, he saw something 
privately just took it, hid it in his tent. Nobody else knew. Didn't hurt anybody else. But actually he did. 36 men died in the next battle. These were sons, husbands, fathers. They died because of his private sin. His family perished. It wasn't just him that was stoned. It was his family. And the nation, of course, um, they lost the next battle as a nation, and it says their hearts became like water. They just were like, oh, God, we thought you were with us. This impacted the nation. Let me give you a second story. 2 Samuel 24. So David uh, is on the throne. This is closer to the end of his life. Starting in verse 1. It says, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Joab was his, his main army commander, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does the Lord, why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? Joab recognized this was not a good idea. The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. It doesn't, in this passage specifically, it doesn't say why taking a census here was wrong or bad. Um, we can uh, perhaps assume that uh, David was becoming prideful or was trusting in his army rather than trusting in the Lord, um, but it doesn't really suggest uh, exactly uh, why this was wrong. But we know that it wasn't the right thing to do, and we know that the commanders knew that this wasn't a good idea, that this would violate what the Lord wanted to happen. So they go out, they count the men, uh, down to verse 8. It says, After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was, was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done it a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says, I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land. Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. It's kind of interesting. God is giving him, okay, what, what do you want your consequence to be here? Three years of famine, three months of running from your enemies, three days of plague. David said to God, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. So David 
did something he was not supposed to do. He sinned against the Lord, and 70,000 people died, not including him or his family. Last story. Uh, Adam and Eve. God creates the world. He creates an artem and uh, he creates a garden in the east in Eden. Places Adam and Eve in there. Gives them all these plants. Says you can eat from any tree that you like, except this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One day Eve is out, and Satan, who appears as a snake, is there in by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and starts talking with Eve and ends up deceiving her, saying, oh, you won't die. God's just keeping something from you. So, Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So they violate the command of the Lord. Their eyes are opened. They realize they're naked. They feel ashamed. They sew fig leaves together. They hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, and they go and hide. God says, where are you? And and Adam says, I was afraid, and so I hid. God is like, well, how did, oh, I was naked. I was afraid, so I hid. God says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit of the tree? He blames the wife. Wife blames the serpent. God curses the serpent, curses the ground. And as a result, farming becomes a whole lot harder. And uh, there's relational conflict that comes between husband and wife and um, difficulties uh, in childbirth, it says, pain will increase. And death enters the world. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 to 14, talks a bit about this. Oh, sorry, Romans chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, he's talking about Adam here, sin entered the world through Adam. And death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who was a pattern of the one to come. Okay, so basically it's saying here, because of Adam's sin, all of us die. Because Adam sinned. Because we were in Adam. So we have Achan, who sinned, and it affects dozens of people. We have David, who sinned, and it affects tens of thousands of people. We have Adam, who sinned, and it affects billions of people. Our sin affects those around us. Now, if I left, if I left it there, we could all go home and be paranoid about everything we did and be like, it would just be better if I wasn't here and be very discouraged. But that is not the end of the story. There is actually good news associated with us. See, we, or with this, we, we, we can look around and we can see, you know, Look at the victims of war. Children die. They're affected by the sins of others. Right? And it's not that any of us are truly, you know, innocent, uh, ultimately. But we suffer. And this is what the world sees. We suffer. People, innocent people suffer for other people's sins and wrong decisions. But here's the rest of the story. 
it's not just that our sin affects others, actually our righteousness in Christ also affects others. Let's go back to Jericho. So Achan is kind of the end of the Jericho story, the bookend on this side. But on this side, right at the beginning, we meet another character that we're introduced to who kind of starts the whole Jericho saga. And her name is Rahab. So Joshua had sent some spies in before they crossed the Jordan River just to kind of see what was going on. They went to Jericho, stayed with a prostitute, Rahab. Um, she hid them from the guards. Uh, she shared that uh, she, she knew God was with the people, and she shared that the nation was in fear because they had heard of what God had done in Egypt to the Egyptians at the Exodus. So let's now compare and contrast Achan and Rahab. Rahab is a Canaanite woman. Achan is a Hebrew man, and he's from the tribe of Judah, and Judah's kind of like the, the top tribe. Right? Rahab is a prostitute, disrespectable person. Achan would, would have been a respectable man. Rahab should have died, but she survived and prospered. Achan should have prospered, but he died. Rahab, her family, and all she owned survived. Achan, his family, and all he owned perished. Rahab, her nation perishes. Achan, his nation prospers. Rahab hides the spies from the king. Achan hides the loot from God and Joshua. Rahab hides the spies on the roof up top. Achan hides the loot under his tent. Rahab fears the God of Israel. Achan does not fear the God of Israel. Rahab um, has only heard of God and yet believes. Achan has seen the acts of God yet disobeys. Rahab, her house survives while the city is burned. Achan, his tent, which is his house, is burned. Rahab, uh, the cattle, sheep, and donkeys of Jericho perish. The cattle, sheep, and donkeys of Achan perish. Rahab, she becomes like an Israelite and lives. Achan becomes like a Canaanite and dies. And I believe that the Lord has put these two stories here to contrast um, the, the behavior, really, of the two people. And where you would think it would kind of be the opposite. Well, Rahab, she's a, she's a Canaanite woman prostitute. Obviously, she deserves judgment. Achan, he's a a righteous man of God in, you know, in, in Israel, obviously he deserves prosperity, and yet it's not the way it works. Achan's family died. His family was affected by what he did. Rahab, because of her righteousness and, and faith in Christ, her family survived. Because of Achan, the nation of Israel lost the next battle. Because of Rahab, she's involved in the victory of the ultimate battle. She becomes an ancestor of Christ who brings the ultimate victory to his people. Achan, he caused uncles, brothers, fathers to die, about 36 of them. Rahab, because she survives and becomes part of Israel, many uncles, brothers, and fathers come from her. Let's go back to the story of David. David, he's an adulterer. He slept with Bathsheba who was Uriah's wife, and he knew it was wrong, and yet he did it. And then murders get, gets Uriah murdered. Uriah was the, the epitome of the faithful servant, uh, soldier, faithful soldier, and yet uh, David had him murdered. He caused the death of 70,000 people because of the census. Significant acts of disobedience. 
And yet, he is called a man after God's own heart. See, whenever he sinned, he always went back to the Lord. God, I sinned. He repented. He was a man who repented after he, after he was convicted of his sin. He didn't harden his heart. He, he desired, earnestly desired to see the will of the Lord accomplished and to follow God's ways. He didn't always do it properly, and there were consequences for that, which affected other people. But his heart was ultimately to see God's kingdom come and his will be done. And I want to show you here how... Um, see, God established his covenant with David, and I want to I show you here how, because of David's desire to please God, how that impacted future generations. In 1 Kings uh, chapter 11, verses 12 to 13, I won't read these verses, but... Um, so Solomon is David's son. Solomon becomes king after David. Wisest man who ever lived. Unfortunately, later in life, he turns away from the Lord. And so here in 1 Kings 11, 12, and 13, God is talking to Solomon, and he says, Nevertheless, I will, um, I will not... Okay, sorry. He's telling Solomon that he's going to tear the kingdom from him because he's been following these other gods. And so God is saying, Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. But I will tear it out of the hand of your son. I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So God still has David before him when he's dealing with Solomon. And Solomon receives grace because of David. And his son, who becomes the next king, Rehoboam, also receives grace because of David. Later on, 1 Kings 15, verse 4, Abijah becomes king of Judah. This is after the kingdom split. Northern Israel, southern Judah. And Abijah was not following the Lord as David had, it says. This is 1 Kings 15, 4. It says, But for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. So if you read the context there, basically, again, because of David, even though Abijah was not following the Lord, God was gracious because of David. 2 Kings 8, 19. King Jehoram, he becomes king. He's the son of Jehoshaphat, um, who was king of Judah. Ahab was king of Israel. Ahab was really wicked. Uh, Jehoram marries a daughter of Ahab, Athaliah. And so you have family relationships in, in um, Israel and Judah. And uh, Jehoram just follows the ways of Ahab and is really wicked. But it says, however, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he had promised him to give him a lamp to him through his sons always. Then in 2 Kings 19.34, Hezekiah's king and Sennacherib from Assyria is trying to come and conquer Jerusalem. And God says, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And later on, he also tells Hezekiah, I will add 15 years to your life and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Generations, generations, generations later, they're still reaping the benefits of David being a man after God's own heart. Where the plague ended that three-day plague that killed 70,000 people is where the temple was built. The temple was a place of forgiveness, a place of repentance, or a place of the very presence of God. 
So the, the righteousness of David, that ultimately our righteousness comes from the Lord, obviously, but the righteousness of David had lasting impact for generations, generations. Now, going back to Adam. Let's go back to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 15 to 21, and I understand that this can be a, a bit of a complicated passage to digest, but what I want you to hear, and I'll, I'll kind of review it after I read this, but what I want you to hear is how um, what Adam did versus what Jesus did. That's what he's contrasting here, comparing. Verse 15, but the gift... So this is what Christ has given us. The gift is not like the trespass, the trespass being what Adam did. For if the many, means humanity, if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that comes by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? So if the sin affected everybody, how much more does God's gift through Christ affect everybody? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life instead of death, through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, as the result of one trespass, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, because Adam sinned, we were all condemned, so also the result of one act of righteousness in Christ was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, just to compare here, one man's offense, Adam, many died. One man's gift, free gift, Jesus Christ, there's righteousness to many. In one man, Adam, his sin, there's judgment and condemnation. Uh, and actually, there was just one sin, and then came judgment and condemnation. Here, there have been many, 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 many sins. And yet, we still get the gift of justification in Christ. Through one man, death reigns in Adam. Through one man, Jesus Christ, believers reign in life. Through one man's offense, there's condemnation to all. Through the righteousness of one man, justification is offered to all. Through the disobedience of one man, we're all made sinners. Through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. Sin reigned in death because of Adam. Grace reigns in eternal life because of Christ. Here are the takeaways. 
the idea that your sin never hurts anyone is false, or that your private sin would never hurt anyone else is false. Just be aware of that. It's not something to uh, get anxious about, but it's important to be aware of that. Secondly, we, we can get caught up in the idea of innocent people suffering because of other people's sin. And that, there's nothing wrong with us um, processing that and, and being grieved over that. That's, that's right. That's good. But that's not the whole story. If we were not made to be impacted by other people's sin, we also could not be impacted by the righteousness of Christ which would be really unfortunate because then if we took of the fruit, there is no hope. Third, based on what we see, even just in these three stories, and particularly where Paul is contrasting Adam and Jesus, our righteousness in Christ has a how much more effect than sin does. So your sin may affect those around you, but the righteousness, the righteousness in Christ affects people how much more? That much more. Righteousness overrules the sin. It's not equal opposites. And lastly, all it took for us to be impacted by Adam's sin was to be born, naturally born. And all it takes for us to be impacted by Christ's righteousness is to be born again. Have you accepted the free gift of salvation and been impacted by the righteousness of Christ that overrules your sin? What, what I, I'm going to pray, and during our prayer time, um, there's two things I just want us to, to kind of focus on. Number one, is there something, and, and this was addressed during the communion time too, but is there something that the Lord might be revealing to you that you're like, that's not right for me to be doing? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm walking in disobedience to the Lord in this, and I need to repent of that because it's actually not just about me. It's about the community. We're a body. When one part suffers, we all suffer. We're impacted by one another in ways that we probably don't even understand. Is there something that the Lord might be putting his finger on? The second thing is, I want you to be open to the Spirit building inside of you a desire for righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Because we have no idea how powerful of an impact that can have. Rahab became an ancestor of Christ. David, the very first verse of the New Testament, calls Jesus the son of David. He had lasting impact for generations generations, generations. And Christ, of course, provided the ultimate solution for all of us.
So in Christ, we want to have a desire to be like Christ, to live like Christ, to worship Christ with extreme obedience and extravagant love so that we can be the salt and light in the world that he's called us to be. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your revealed word that shows us your truth. God, that you, you, you give us the answers. We, we face um, different ideas that come at us, but your truth holds us fast. You tell us that if we, if we listen to the word and do what it says, we're like a man who built his house on a rock. When the winds and rains come, it stands firm. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that uh, for those that um, there is something that you might be just saying, you know, okay, it's time. Now's the time to deal with this. Lord, I pray for grace. For grace, not for condemnation, not, not for a response like Adam who, who realized he was exposed in his nakedness and just, just ran and hid out of fear. But rather, there would be a willingness to engage with our creator who's saying, no, 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 I want to make you whole. This is not condemnation. This is wholeness and healing. Lord, that there would be brothers and sisters who can come around and support and help and encourage. Lord, I pray that you would stir up in us just a desire for holiness, for righteousness, to be like your son, to be willing to follow as you lead, to camp where you camp, to move when you move. That our love for you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength would always be forefront. We would so desire to do whatever you tell us to do because we know that you, you ultimately know what's best. And God, through that, that our communities, that our families, that our nation would be impacted think of another verse when there was another king and, and you didn't destroy Judah because you said there still was some good in it. Let us be that good. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like further prayer, I'm happy to pray with you. I'm sure Paul is. And uh, blessings on you.